You're listening to a sermon podcast from Paramount Church in Columbus, Ohio. To learn more, visit ParamountColumbus.com. One of my favorite things to do every week is to say these words. Let me invite you to turn with me in your copy of God's Word to the sermon text this morning, Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Uh, Those are the most important words that we speak in our church, because what's most important is for us to get our hearts and our eyes set on the Word of God, because this is our truth. This is our starting point. This is how we always begin with those same words. If you're joining us as a guest this morning, welcome. We're happy that you're here. We are continuing forward about halfway through a sermon series in the book of Philippians, which is often referred to as the Epistle of Joy, written by the Apostle Paul to Christians living in a place called Philippi. And the letter is called the Epistle of Joy because it is full, as is the Bible and much of Paul's writing, with a focus on joy in Christ, the important place of Christian happiness in the Christian life. And I know that for many of us, myself included, the kinds of things that we are digging out of the Word of God in this sermon series is paradigm shifting. Any kind of focus on happiness in Christ, joy and gladness in Christ, is somewhat unfamiliar to many of us. For some reason, this has long laid buried, and we are delighted to unearth it and to recover it in our Christian lives. And I hope that it's an encouragement to you the way that it's been an encouragement to me, but it is paradigm shifting. Anytime I come across something in the Christian life that shifts my paradigm like this does, it always helps me to to get some more input just to keep, you know, I find myself in those moments really becoming kind of ravenous for the truth, and and I, I fix my mind on taking in as much as I can. So I want to encourage you, if you feel that way, that you might get a copy of this book. There are a handful of copies of a book called Does God Want Us to Be Happy by an author named Randy Alcorn, and they're up on our resource table. And I would encourage you to take one of these and begin reading a little each day. And you will find this short book. You see, it's, it's very short, actually, just a, about 150 pages. Uh, that This book will help us to think more and more about this important topic that is coming to mind for us in the book of Philippians. You probably know Randy Alcorn if you've heard his name before, uh, maybe uh, more well-known for his book on heaven, but this is uh, one of his books on happiness. There's a much longer one, and it helps us to understand many of those questions that we're wrestling with in the book of Philippians and, and aiming to become, as the sermon series title says, connoisseurs of happiness. We're being confronted with, with questions like, do I really know how to be happy? Do I really want to be happy? I know that God wants me to be holy, but is it possible, could it be true that God does also want me to be happy? In a broken world that we know so well as being broken under the fall of mankind, of our first parents, our own sin, is happiness even a worthy pursuit in a world like this? Or maybe you've asked this question that we've asked together on Sunday mornings, is it selfish for me to want to be happy? 
Doesn't the Bible teach a kind of distinction between real joy and fleeting happiness? These are the kinds of questions that we're working to answer together, and we pray that God would continue to make us that very thing, connoisseurs of happiness. There's nothing that glorifies God more than for us to have our happiness, our joy, our gladness, our rejoicing, our satisfaction, our hope in Him. Because that is what, more than anything else, puts on display his worth, his value, his glory, his beauty. And so we come again to the book of Philippians with this motivation. We want to grow in our happiness in Christ, to maximize it so that we can magnify the glory of the God who has satisfied us and makes us more and more happy with each passing day. Let's set our eyes here on Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, as we are reminded again of what is, in fact, the most frequent command in the Bible. And the most frequent command in the Bible is simply to be happy. It is to rejoice over and over and over again. This is a repeated refrain in the Bible. And what we find here, even in verse 1, if we just take the first verse as a kind of introduction to this sermon and notice what Paul is saying, we find him giving that same reminder again. Again, the reminder that this letter is the epistle of joy for a reason. Notice what he says at the beginning of chapter 3, finally, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. There it is again. There's that command to rejoice. But then notice something interesting he says next. To write the same things again is no trouble for me, and it is a safeguard for you. One of the habits of the Apostle Paul is to repeat over and over again the truths that are most important. He knows something that we know to some degree as well, that we are, as human beings and as Christians, we are forgetful people. The pressures and the troubles and the trials and the tribulations and the losses and the crosses of life press in on us. And I find so often in my life that the key, most lasting, most, most robust, most uh, uh, glad-making truths are the first ones to leave me. In those moments of real difficulty and challenge, and Paul is writing to believers who are who are, who are thrust into these kinds of challenges, and so he knows they need this reminder. There are so many ways that God is continually reminding us of the truth. I mean, I even think about the way that many of us came to faith in Christ. Think about your own testimony. It's uncommon for a person to hear the gospel once, and then you come to faith in Christ. Often what's happened, your story is full of repeated refrains of gospel truth. God gives you someone and you hear the gospel. God gives you someone else and you hear the gospel again. You forget the truth and he brings it to you again. Even after we become Christians, this is what we need. Paul knows this and therefore he reminds them again. And notice what he keeps saying over and over again. What does he keep holding out before them? What does he keep commanding them to do over and over rejoice. And with that command, he's giving them every reason, stacking them on top of each other, one after another, all of the reasons that you have to glorify God 
by rejoicing in him. Well, we want to ask the question this morning, what does that mean? How can we today rejoice in Christ? And we'll do that by finding three key truths that Paul delivers here that can help us. These, again, are not the only truths, but they are the three that he gives here at this moment in the letter when he's wanting to remind them again. It is a joy to him to remind them, and it's even a safeguard for his readers because he knows that there are many things working against them. But nevertheless, remember, 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 what is Paul after in the book of Philippians? What does he want more than anything else for his readers to do and know and experience? Joy. He wants them to be happy in Christ, regardless of their circumstances, and he keeps repeating it. Again, this comes up over and over again in even just this letter. Verse, chapter 1, verse 4, 118, 125, 2, 2, 2, 17 and 18, 2, 28, 3, 1 this morning, 4, 1, 4, 4, 4, 10. Those are the places in this letter alone that the Apostle Paul talks about rejoicing, being glad, being happy. He's flooding them with it, and we're happy to receive it this morning as we think about these three truths. So what are the three truths this morning that help us to rejoice in Christ? What should we remember? What should we exercise? What should be our focus? Here's the first that Paul gives to them in this text. He says, first, if you want, and I want you to, rejoice in Christ, you must Beware of the dogs. That's a weird thing to say. That's not something that we typically, the kind of language that we typically use, and that's probably not what you would expect in a kind of sermon about joy. But nevertheless, Paul knows the truth. He knows what we're up against, and he refers to it or them as dogs. Look at verse 2. He says, this is his reminder to them. This is his a safeguard for them, and this is one of the tools for them to be happy in Christ, is that they must, he says in verse 2, beware of the dogs. And then he clarifies, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision. He gives this trio of warnings, all warning about the same people. These aren't different people. They're the same people who were around and who were a kind of danger to these believers and their happiness in Christ. Well, first, let's ask the question, who are the dogs? What exactly does that mean? Well, the dogs that Paul refers to here are the same that he talks about in many of his letters and his writings. They are those who were voicing untruth all around the believers. Even some of those who had slipped inside some of the churches that he served and planted, and they were stirring up strife and dissension and introducing other ways of of thinking about God and the gospel, and he refers to them as dogs. He also warns them because they need to beware for a particular reason. And the reason is that if they are not on guard against the the false truth or false teachers around them, that those, quote, truths, or what we would call untruths, are tempting. They they seek to, to... to connect in to the, to the desires of the human heart still with remaining sin and pull away 
from the pure gospel, to pull them away from Christ, to diminish their happiness and joy and satisfaction in Christ alone, for Christ alone, because of Christ alone. And so he tells them, beware of the dogs. He uses the word kinos or kainos in reference to these dogs. And, and this is the word that's used for actual dogs. But of course, Paul's not, he's not talking about dogs. What he's doing is he's, he's referencing something that they're aware of out in the world and reminding them of what these false teachers are like. He's, he's painting a picture, and it's a picture that we can understand. He is, like many others of the time, and perhaps many others today, would use this term dogs as a derogatory term. And it's a term that you can even imagine just thinking about what are wild dogs like, stray dogs like. Uh, One example would be the Indian pariah dog, which is a, a scavenger with scavenging skills out on the street, able to survive. But Paul is using this language in a similar way to talk about those who are outside. They're outside the family of God. They insist on pressing false teaching on the church. These are the kind of stray animals that, that lurk in the, in the margins around, on the fringes, and they are a danger. They're different than, perhaps, uh, even in India and here, the difference between an Indian pariah dog and a Labrador, a, a commonly domesticated animal, one that lives on the inside, one that is friendly, one that is man's best friend. He's warning them about these other dogs. But notice what else he says, because we can pick up on what they're like. Beware of the evil workers. So in one sense, they're like dogs. They are roaming around, sneaking around, scavenging. They're not trustworthy. They don't belong on the inside. They're not part of your family. But they're also evil workers. Even just that word workers rings in our ears that they are diligent. They're persistent. They're not haphazard roaming just without intention and purpose. They're roaming on purpose with their false teaching, and that's what's most concerning to Paul. But then we learn a little more about them because in the trio, he finishes with beware of the false circumcision. Understanding what circumcision is, the cutting away of flesh, he uses this language to describe the way that they see a possible relationship with God and their own lives. He actually uses the language self-mutilators or mutilators of the flesh. And this is where we're getting a sense of exactly what Paul's concern about them is. It's not merely that they're working. It's not merely that they're roaming. It's what they're after. It's what is at the heart of their teaching. And what's at the heart of their teaching is a kind of self-mutilation, a kind of self-flesh sacrifice, a kind of self-salvation by works that he means when he talks about the false circumcision. He's talking about those who physically or spiritually might berate themselves in a way to make some kind of penance for their sin or the feeling of guilt that they have. Or the kind of people who would see the relationship with God as built upon their own works. They, they must keep all of the commands. They must 
uh, they must discipline themselves in this way to please God so that he will accept them. You see, that's very different than what the gospel teaches us. The gospel teaches us that our acceptance with God is not by works. It's not by flesh. It's by faith. And therefore, he refers to them as the false circumcision. It's a false attempt to cut away what you know is wrong with you. To get rid of your sin by doing it on your own, out of your own work, out of your own effort, out of your own self-will, your own willpower. But of course, Paul's consistent encouragement and refrain is salvation, joy, freedom, forgiveness, happiness is by grace alone. It is through faith alone, not works. And this is his real issue. If you want to know how serious Paul is about this, read other places, and there are many that he writes about these workers. Here's one in Galatians 5.12, speaking of the same false teachers, the same false circumcision, evil workers, roaming dogs. He says, I wish that those who are troubling you would even emasculate themselves. This is super serious, even sort of graphic language that gets to the heart of what Paul thinks about this. What does Paul think about self-salvation? What does Paul think about the idea that we should ramp up our self-will so that we can be disciplined rule followers in order to earn God's favor and belong to him by our own works. What does he think about it? He hates it. He loathes it. He wants to kill it. And everywhere he goes, that's what he sets out to do. He is like someone on the streets, roaming himself, looking for the dogs so that he could stop them, so that he could put them to death. Not, not literally, but to put their ideas to death because he sees how serious these are. And therefore he says, beware the dogs. Notice also in Galatians 5.12, the verse that I referenced, that he says, they are troubling you. This tells us something else about all of ourselves, our own hearts, our own lives even those that he's writing, writing to here in, in the book of Galatians, is that we are vulnerable. We're not immune. We shouldn't think that we are beyond that now, that we're beyond any kind of self-salvation thinking. We're beyond relating to God as rule followers rather than grace lovers. We would never do such a thing. We have arrived. If that were true, they wouldn't be troubled. If that were true for us, we wouldn't be troubled either, but we are. In fact, every single person in the room is troubled in this way. Because the law is written on your heart. And there is something inside of you that wants to save yourself. There's something inside of me that wants to be self-righteous. And that will be there until my dying day, until Jesus returns and takes it away. Therefore... There is a kind of dog. There is a kind of evil worker. There is a voice of false circumcision living inside of me. 
and it continues to chirp and plead with me to abandon grace alone and to pick up another way to be right with God, another way to be justified, to be valuable, to be happy. And this is what he is warning. Beware the dogs. Before we move on to the second point this morning, let's just notice in the word beware, what does that mean? It means that you're attentive. It means you're vigilant. And you're vigilant against this very thing. We cannot be vigilant all the time against every spiritual danger in the world, against every voice of untruth. We are finite creatures. We have to focus in on certain things. And Paul continually, continually comes back at the top of his list. If you can only focus on rooting one thing out of your life, he says, root out your desire to save yourself. Root out that voice of the dog or the evil worker or the false circumcision that keeps rising up in you. Be attentive and vigilant against self-salvation, against self-berating as a way of appeasing God and clearing your conscience. Instead, instead, he says, do this. Two, place absolute confidence in Christ alone. That's the second uh, truth that helps us to understand what does it mean to rejoice in Christ? How does that happen? First, you must, if you're going to live this kind of life as a Christian, and we want to in our church, and we want to spread this far and wide, we must beware the dogs. But second, we must also place absolute confidence in Christ Notice in verse 3, what Paul does is he uses the same kind of language that he used about the dogs or evil workers, referring to them as the false circumcision. And he refers to himself and those who are with him in the family of faith, in the, the covenant of promise we know to be the gospel, those who relate to God on the basis of his grace, not on the basis of their works. He refers to them, to himself. He says, we are the true circumcision. The true circumcision. Now, let's just get this out of the way right, right away. He is not saying we are the true circumcision. We have spiritually circumcised our own hearts by our own deeds and our own cleverness. We saved ourselves with a true circumcision. We're better than everybody else, right? That's not what he means. He sees instead that this true circumcising of our hearts, the true righteousness that we have, is all of grace. It's only a gift. There's nothing that we can boast about except in the God who would treat us so well in spite of how big and bad of sinners we actually are. But he does say we are the true circumcision, that our hearts have been changed that a work has been done in us to cut away what doesn't belong. And then he describes what what they are like. What, What are the attributes of these people? We are the true circumcision who worship in the spirit of God with this true God centeredness that is brought about only by the grace of God at work in us. With a kind of cheerfulness and joy and happiness that only comes by truly knowing the living God. This is contrasted with the dogs or evil workers. They do not worship in the Spirit of God. 
They worship in the flesh of man. They worship in their own way, in their own system. But then he goes on and says, and we take pride in Christ Jesus. Here comes the boasting. It's also contrasted from the evil workers who took pride where? In themselves, in their own works. This is the way they would see themselves through the lens of self-righteousness. They look at their own lives and they esteem themselves because of what they have done, what they can do, the kind of rules that they've kept, what they believe and think on their own. But he says here that we, instead of taking pride in ourselves or esteeming ourselves or having confidence in ourselves and our flesh, we take pride in Christ. We look to him because he's the one who has done all for us. He's the one who has shown us such amazing and marvelous grace. And then he says after that, put no confidence in your flesh. Here's that reminder. It's coming up over and over again. The only reason he's doing that is because he knows that this is the habit of every human heart. Every human heart sitting here today, myself included, our hearts want to and naturally place confidence where? In ourselves, in our flesh, in our own ability to do our own thing. Paul's instructions show us two ways to live. We either will live by faith in Christ and what he has done, or we will live by flesh. This is a good question for every one of us. It's a good question for me to ask on a daily basis. Rush, are you going to live today by faith in Christ, or are you going to live by flesh? Are you going to live with an appreciation and a gladness for what Jesus Christ has done, and you're going to boast in that, and you're going to invest all of your energy in understanding and reveling in the grace of God in your life, or are you going to live by your flesh? Are you going to spend the day evaluating your relationship with God based upon your own law-keeping? Are you going to pump yourself up with memories of good things that you have done or compliments that people have given you so that you can feel good about yourself and what you've done in life? Or are you going to bring to mind over and over again what Christ has done? These are the two different ways of living that he's drawing out between the evil workers and the true circumcision, the true workers. The evil workers are not only dogs because they are self-mutilators or they live this kind of rigid life and hope that they could save or themselves or gain a righteousness of, of their own, but it's because they hope in self-righteousness. They hope in self-punishment. They don't live by faith. They live by flesh. Their pursuit of God is grounded in their own grit and their own effort to trudge forward, to row out into the great sea that is God and to take themselves there. One of the greatest places that surfers go to enjoy their sport or to compete is to the north shore of Oahu, Hawaii. This is where you've heard of it or you maybe have seen it on TV or maybe you have been you know, you know, privileged enough to go see it yourself is the Banzai Pipeline. Some of the biggest waves, incredible crashing breakers onto the sea makes a great place for surfing. Now, imagine for a moment 
that you wanted to go out into that great sea to see what was there, and you wanted to, to see the, the great horizon beyond the breakers. And so you do what any of us would think to do. You get in your little rowboat and you start rowing. You will never make it. No matter how hard you row, row, row. But if you're determined enough, you could spend all day rowing and rowing and rowing until you just physically couldn't do it anymore. This is what the Christian life is like if we listen to the dogs. We think that it's our own effort that can row us out into the sea, that can make everything better, that can appease our conscience, that can please God, that can give us his favor. And we row and we row and we row and we never get past the breakers. Why is that? It's because that's not what God has intended. That's not the way that he has set up the Christian life. That's not the way that he's set up relationship with him. He is the great sea beyond the breakers and there's nothing that I can do to reach him. I need him to come pick me up in his boat because he is the only one who has the horsepower to get me out there past the breakers of my sin so that I could be with him. You see, this is the picture, a kind of picture that he's painting of what it means to place confidence in Christ versus placing confidence in the flesh. And this is an interesting thing for Paul of all people to say, because as he points out here, if there's anyone who has a reason to place confidence in the flesh, it's him. Because Paul had an incredible, incredible uh, resume, spiritual resume, which we'll see in a moment. But he is more concerned about being true, truly spiritual, truly righteous, And therefore, he refers to the true circumcision as a way of talking about true righteousness. Not our own self-righteousness that comes, uh, our own self-righteousness which comes from ourselves, but the one that comes from God. So here's the big problem that Paul is pointing out. Here's the reason he says to beware of the dogs. This is the reason he wants us to insist that our confidence is in Christ It is because this works mentality is infective and we should not think that we are immune or uninfected even right now. I'm going to read for you a number of statements, some of which every person in here has said or thought maybe in the last week, especially when hard times come so that we can have a little echo and reminder of what is still lurking within our hearts with respect to Paul's urging for us to place our confidence in Christ, which means to take it out of where it currently is and place it more firmly in Christ. This is the repeated refrain of the Christian life. Have you ever thought or said something like this? I have been so diligent And so faithful in my prayers and Bible studies, I should not be facing these difficulties in life. This, this is not fair. I've done so much for other people. I've done so much for my church. I should be rewarded. I deserve something. I I deserve some success or some wealth or some prosperity because of all that I have given. I follow all the rules. I live a moral life. 
So I of all people should be spared from suffering and tragedy. I've dedicated my life to serving God. So don't you think that he should dedicate himself to me? He should prevent me from this harm or this danger? I've overcome certain sins and struggles. So I should be immune to these temptations by now. These things shouldn't be happening to me anymore. I've given generously to all kinds of charitable causes. Why am I having these financial troubles now? I've been a good person. I have helped other people. I should be guaranteed a place in heaven. Those statements are lurking in the darkness of every heart in the room. And what it does is it reminds us of just how challenging this Christian life that he's presenting to us is. Just how continually rehearsed these truths have been for us. But Paul is on a mission. He's on a mission to rid us of that. And it's the most beautiful thing that he could do for us. It's the most freeing. It's the most heart gladdening and happy thing that could happen is for us to abandon all of that thinking and to exchange it for the truth of absolute confidence, true, happy confidence in Christ. Listen again to another place that Paul uh, deals with this. It's even coming up uh, uh, later in the Bible in Galatians 4, verses 21 through 24. Listen to this. He's talking again about this this idea that I could live by the law and I could be self-righteous and and maybe I I deserve certain things because I I uh, I have obeyed. He says this, tell me, You who want to be under law, do you not listen to the law? For it's written that Abraham had two sons, one by the bondwoman and one by the free woman. But the son by the bondwoman was born according to the flesh. Now he's using another picture. Two sons, one by the flesh and the son by the free woman through the promise. That's the gospel. He says, this is allegorically speaking, for these women are two covenants, one proceeding from Mount Sinai, the giving of the law. She has children who are to be slaves. She is Hagar. And then he contrasts that with with the gospel that brings us the promise of what Christ would do for us. But he again is showing two ways to live, two roads to walk, two covenants to belong to. One covenant says, I am saved because of my works. Another covenant says, I am saved because of grace and God's promise to me in Christ. And Paul wants to rid our hearts of the first and replace it with the second. He mentions this righteousness that comes by faith. It's even coming up uh, very soon in verse 9, that he wants a righteousness that is by faith, not by flesh. This is a good opportunity for us to to pause and think about our own hearts. Maybe take some time later today or this week to think about where is this lurking in me? What situations am I in where this comes up and out of me? It might not come out of my mouth, but at least it surges up into my brain and I start thinking like this. Find those occasions and kill them destroy them with grace, bring the gospel back in, remind yourself of what real happiness is, what real righteousness is, what real joy is, what real salvation is, and return to placing confidence in Christ. 
The final truth that we see this morning is that in addition to bewaring of the dogs and placing absolute confidence in Christ, Paul says, once you have done that, count everything else as loss when compared to Christ. This is where he talks about his resume. Listen to this because he shows that if anybody is going to have reason to boast, it would be him. And he's giving us the example of throwing everything else away in exchange for a life that is built on grace. He says, if anyone else thinks he is confident in the flesh, I have more reason. And he starts talking about all of the accolades uh, of his life, all of the attributes, qualities, characteristics, accomplishments in his spiritual life. He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day according to the law of the nation of Israel, belonging to the right nation, of the tribe of Benjamin, belonging to the Old Testament tribe that did not rebel, a Hebrew of Hebrews. He, he's like the valedictorian of all of the, the Jews. As to the law of Pharisee, a law keeper. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. His commitment to this self-salvation way was so strong that he even went out as one of the dogs. He was an evil worker. He was a false circumcision. As to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. If anybody is going to say, boast in yourself, look at what I did, pat me on the back, it's Paul. But notice what he says in verse 7. But. Negating everything else that came before. That's what the word but does. It negates all of the resume. But instead, whatever things were gained to me, these things I have counted as loss because of Christ. When I read this passage, I think about how daily difficult it was to maintain this kind of focus as the Apostle Paul. No one in here has a resume like this. No one in here has this level of reason to boast, but Paul did. And I think about what was that like for him? He's using accounting language. The language of counting his loss is, is like you would take a ledger book and you would balance your checkbook, you would balance your finances. He's saying that he took everything else that was of value to him and he cast it away. He counted it as loss on the ledger sheet so that the only thing in his assets was Christ and Christ alone. It was all just in the whole asset line. It just says over and over again, grace, 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 grace. Because previously, his whole ledger book said, law-keeping, 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 zeal, zeal, Pharisee, 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 Hebrew of Hebrews, Hebrew of Hebrews, right? He put all of that away, but what was that like for him? Why is he giving this reminder? Is it simply because they need the reminder? Or is it because he needs the reminder? I think it's both. He needs the reminder as well. Imagine it this way. Imagine using the accounting language that you are a diligent accountant working for um, like a prestigious financial firm and you spend long hours meticulously tracking and managing all of the financial transactions. You ensure every day that everything adds up perfectly. In fact, it is your expertise in numbers and calculations that is unmatched and makes this result possible. And you take great pride 
in your accuracy and your attention to detail. And because of that, one day you receive a job offer from another company. And this company promises you incredible wealth and incredible freedom. This new opportunity seems irresistible. It's sort of tempting you to leave your current position. And as you contemplate the offer, you decide to take it. You, you realize, though, that accepting it would mean to leave all of that other behind. All of those accomplishments of the past have to be left behind. And you decide to take that position. But what you find very quickly is you keep reverting back. You keep looking back at what once was. You think about all of the uh, awards that you were given or promotions that you were given, the way that you were, you were the key to everything that was going on in your old position. This is a little bit of what it's like for the Apostle Paul. I wonder, did he lay awake at night like I do, fantasizing about scenarios where he would be the hero? Did he think back about all of the things that he did in the past and, and recollect in his mind all of those accomplishments, all of those ways that he was zealous, all of those ways that other Pharisees pointed at him and said, wow, look at Paul. Look at what he's doing. He's, he's got it all together. He is blameless. Did he think back about all of his accomplishments? I bet he did. Because I would. If this was my resume... I would be tormented by temptation every day to think back and put my trust in that. To think back about how I had been, what I had accomplished. But Paul says, I'm counting it as loss. And I think that's a daily thing. And it's a daily thing for us. You see, this is why he's so serious about it. He understands. He understands the threat of your own resume. And the threat is that it will drain you of ultimate satisfaction and joy in life because it will pull you away from the God who gives that gladness by grace alone. And therefore, he continues to come back over and over again with this offer. Listen to this. This, this is hard to hear because it doesn't sound right, but just hear it out. Jesus can make you happy. Jesus does make you happy. That's why he does what he does. Because by making you happy in him, he mounts glory onto his father for what he has done. But here's the difference. We are not saying that Jesus makes us happy like any old thing in the world. Here's the difference. What is Paul saying? Jesus can make you happy all by himself. He doesn't need anything else. He doesn't need any tools. He doesn't need other people. He doesn't need any other kinds of gifts to make you happy. He does it all by himself. And that's what we're in the pursuit of. That's what Paul is in the pursuit of. Being happy in Christ alone. Yes, he gives us all of these wonderful gifts to enjoy. He does all of these things in our lives. But ultimately, what it comes down to is that Jesus And Jesus alone can make us happy all by himself. Therefore, we want to pursue this together in him so that our hearts would not be made happy by accomplishments of the past or compliments that we rightly receive. 
but that our ultimate joy, our ultimate confidence and hope is in him. This is paradigm shifting. This is a big change for, for us to pursue Christ in this way, but it is, it is worth it. It is eternally and wonderfully worth it. Therefore, we want to take these truths to heart. We want to beware the dogs. We must return and place our confidence in Christ, and then we can cheerfully count everything else as loss. But of course, that begins by coming to Christ first and foremost, repenting of our sin, placing our trust in him. If you've already placed your trust in Christ and you belong to him, then, then let's continue to, to, to reach forward Continue to pursue the joy that Christ gives us because of the gospel, to continue feeding one another on the good news of Jesus. But if not, then I pray that today would be the day of your salvation, that you would come to Christ and you would be made right with him by grace alone, and that you would have the freedom and the joy of abandoning all else, all of your other works and all of your other hopes, and placing them all in the one who will always come through in the end and the one who is glorified more and more as we learn to be satisfied and happy in him. I mean, let me invite you to stand now as we prepare to sing, and those who come to lead us come, and we pray once again, because we need God's help for this. We need him to work in our hearts and to show us where the change is needed. Father, we come before you on this morning, thankful for your good news, thankful for the voice of the Apostle Paul that you have preserved for us in your word, Someone who understands, who understands the pull of our fallen hearts to hope in other things, even other good things. Someone who understands the, the need for repetition and refrain again and again and again of the gospel, the good news that our salvation, our righteousness, our hope, our happiness is in Christ alone. And someone who knows that we are up against a serious threat all around us, even within our own hearts of the dogs, the evil workers, the false circumcision, the self-salvation that our hearts long for. We pray that you would root it out of us and that that would be to the, the great joy and gladness of our hearts to be freer and freer day by day from that kind of thinking, that kind of believing so that we could, we could continue more and more to rest in you. Help us, help us to rest and help us to be glad in the gospel this morning and forevermore. We pray this in Jesus' name.